Welcome to Earthly, a Clemson University podcast discussing issues of agriculture, horticulture, nature, and design impacting the world, nation, state of South Carolina, and even your home. Here's your host, Jonathan Veet. Radon is the second leading cause of lung cancer after smoking, and in South Carolina, lung cancer is the most diagnosed form of cancer and the most common cause of cancer deaths. In fact, the EPA estimates that radon alone causes more than 21,000 lung cancer deaths in the United States each year. The South Carolina Department of Health and Environmental Control has produced a map showing that radon levels in upstate South Carolina homes are higher than other parts of the state. Today on Earthly, I talk with doctors Nicole Martinez and Lindsay Schuler nichols Martinez is an expert in radon radiological health sciences, and Schuler nichols is a materials scientist, both in Clemson's Department of Environmental Engineering and Earth Sciences. They're going to help us understand what causes radon, why it's higher in the upstate, its potential health effects, and resources for testing and mitigation. Nicole and Lindsay, thanks for joining me on Earthly today. Happy to be here. Yeah, happy to be here. So, uh, as you guys know, DHEC produced a map that shows radon rates are higher in the South Carolina upstate than in other parts of the state. In fact, DHEC reports that Oconee and Greenville County have the highest average in-home rates in the state. Uh, can you tell us what radon is, where it comes from, and why it might be higher in the upstate? Uh, radon is a, what we call a noble gas. So if you're looking at a periodic table, it's all the way on the far right side comes from the decay, radioactive decay of uranium and thorium that are naturally present in the earth. And we see the higher concentrations in the upstate because in the upstate, the bedrock or the, the primary rock beneath our soil is a little bit different than what it looks like in the, the midlands and the low country. So in the, upstate, we have granite. And in that granite, we have lots of different types of minerals. So there, there's a mineral called biotite, which is a mica. It's shiny, flaky. It's used in makeup. We have a mineral called, um, well, the feldspars. Those are the most dominant mineral in Earth's crust. We have quartz and we have garnets. There is a lot of flexibility because there are a lot of different types of sites where atoms can go. And the way that I like to think about it is, you know, that old game when you were a little kid and there was this cube with different sized holes, like a star hole and a square hole and a circle hole, and you stuck the little peg in the different holes. That's what I think of minerals like. So you have minerals that have different sized and shaped spaces where atoms can go. And in, in the garnet, you have spaces where the uranium can go. So they're very flexible, structured minerals. So in the garnet, you can have pretty high concentrations of uranium. There are also other kind of rare minerals in the upstate. So because of this rock that formed under high temperature and pressure, that's what granite is, um, we also have some pockets of regions that slowly cool from really high temperature and pressure. And in those regions, you can get, because of the slow cooling, you can get high concentrations of rarer elements like uranium. Even in um, central South Carolina, there's a what's called a pegmatite. And in that pegmatite, 
we have really high concentration of odd odd minerals like these tantalites. So inside those tantalites, we have even higher concentrations of uranium. Because radon is a decay product of uranium, the uranium is, you can't stop that process. So it's decaying over time and producing eventually radon. And the radon is a gas. So it seeps up from the earth through pore space. The higher radon concentrations are really found in homes that have like a basement or a crawl space where the radon like a gas can accumulate. It's kind of like a balloon. So the radon can go into that space and fill up that space. And that's where you have to mitigate the the radon in the house. Most people have heard of uranium, um, but I don't think a lot of people have heard of thorium. Can you talk a little bit about thorium and what it is? Thorium is kind of like, I think of it like a sibling of uranium. Uh, So they often find them associated with one another. They are both called actinides. They're really heavy. They're on that last row of the periodic table, that subset way down at the bottom. Um, And it's a naturally occurring radioactive element. It has a really long half-life, so it's still on earth. And thorium can be used like uranium for nuclear energy. It is not fissile, which means that it can't fission itself, but it can take on another neutron and become a a uranium isotope, which can then fission. So there are some countries in the world that use thorium for nuclear energy, for the fuel, where we use uranium for the fuel. So countries um, like India, India has really high concentrations of thorium in their their beach, monazite beach sands. And uh, Brazil actually has a uh, a lot of thorium deposits. In the upstate, we have some thorium, some elevated concentrations of thorium along with the uranium. The way that the thorium moves in the earth is a little bit different. So the way that the deposits have formed is a little bit different because the uranium can, um, what we call oxidize, it can become, it can lose more electrons and that makes it more soluble in water. So it can move more easily in the earth. It's more mobile. So radon is measured in picocuries per liter. So if you could help our listeners understand what that measurement means and how it might compare to like an x-ray or an MRI or something else that they can relate to. Picocurie is a unit that expresses radioactivity. And I think a fun fact is that the Curie was named after the Curies, Marie and Pierre, who discovered radium in the late 1800s. And originally, it was defined as the radioactivity of one gram of radium. So as we kind of move forward, we kind of redefined that to be a specific amount of radioactivity or a specific decays per second, because it is more precise. But that's really what radioactivity is. We have an unstable nucleus, it wants to be more stable, and to do so, it releases energy. So that process is referred to as radioactive decay. So then 100 picocuries is about four decays per second. And then picocuries per liter would then be radioactivity concentration. So this energy that's emitted, the radiation is referred to as ionizing radiation because it has high enough energy to knock out atomic electrons from their orbit and create ions. So this has the potential to lead to damage in the cells of our body. So for high concentrations of red on an air, we come become concerned about radioactivity depositing in the lungs. 
So actually, as Lindsay mentioned that radon is a noble gas, we breathe it in, we breathe it out. Radon itself is actually not a problem, but radon has decay products and those can deposit in the lungs and that's what we would be concerned with. So if we're comparing that to like an x-ray machine or a CT, on the other hand, those actually don't have any radioactive material associated with it. Rather, they use electrons to strike a target to generate radiation. So that's called bremsstrahlung, which is a, a fancy way. Of, I think it's German of saying breaking radiation, radiation given off by electrons when they're like deflected. So they use that then to create images. But nothing becomes radioactive and there's no radiation being emitted if the machine is turned off. And then an MRI uses magnets to generate radio waves. So although that's electromagnetic radiation, it's not ionizing. That does not have the energy um, to create ions like ionizing radiation does. So it's the activity in the body that, that can then cause damage. But you can also have energy outside the body, right? In some cases, energy can come towards the body and deposit its energy. But it's that energy deposition that's what we're concerned with. So D has suggests that homeowners should consider mitigation if the average of two tests is above 4.0 picocuries per liter. What can the effects on human health be from that level of, of radiation? Great question. As I, I mentioned, the health outcome of concern for radon is lung cancer. And again, a variety of factors can affect someone's risk, most notably smoking. According to the EPA, overall, Radon's the second leading cause of lung cancer behind smoking and the leading cause of lung cancer in non-smokers. So we're, we're talking about the action level specifically, though. If a thousand people, non-smokers, were exposed to this level over their whole lifetime, about seven people would get lung cancer. So about seven out of 1,000. And then if 1,000 people who smoke were similarly exposed, that goes up to 62 people could get lung cancer. So 62 out of 1,000. So smoking makes a huge difference, a, a big difference in risk. How, how can homeowners test their homes and how can they mitigate if they, if they discover that they have a problem? So there's a lot of options for testing, ranging from you can pick up a test kit at Lowe's or an Amazon for about $15, um, but you do want to make sure you check the expiration date, or you could hire a qualified radon professional. Also, right now, you can request a free kit from DHEC. And if your home tests higher than the action level, they'll send you a second kit for free as well, since the EPA recommends those two, two data points, as you mentioned. And then the, the choice to mitigate in the mitigation strategy really is going to depend on the situation. Um, it's going to depend on what the radon level is, how your home, the ventilation is set, all kinds of things like that. Um, improved ventilation might help, but a technique called active soil depressurization is probably the most common. I mentioned those, those air pressure differences earlier. This technique is trying to shift that, basically, that differential under your home. But if you do decide to do a hire a radon measurement or mitigation provider, you do want to make sure that they're certified. And there's two national certification programs, the National Radon Proficiency Program and the National Radon Safety Board. Um, the EPA Consumer Guide to Radon, and you can just find that on EPA's website, also has a really lot of great information about this, as does DHEC's website. Is 0.4 picocuries a magic number or can people mitigate to zero? Everyone really kind of have to decide for themselves what's appropriate and what is the like a, a, appropriate um, 
right on level or really any risk, right? You kind of have to decide for yourself what you think is acceptable. Um, because if you're in an area like Colorado is probably going to have a, a good but higher rate on concentration. So for someone with a higher natural background, it's going to be harder to mitigate their home to, you know, even in South Carolina, maybe to two picocuries per liter is going to be easier than it is in Colorado. Typically, that's not always the case. But there are some circumstances where you have to consider is, is it worth spending a few thousand dollars to reduce your radon concentration from four to two, for example? Those are just, I just made that up. I don't, you know, I, I don't have a case study in mind. But it, it is something that you kind of have to consider. We kind of have to decide for ourselves. And I just wanted to tell a story um, and that is, I have a, a radon detector because I think it's interesting and fun. Uh, and so I measured my parents' house. So we measured their main floor and we measured their basement. Um, and the, the main floor was fine under the action level, but the basement was on the order of, let's say, 10 picocuries per liter. Um, and this was like a fairly quick measurement. And generally, you want to measure over a longer amount of time. And so my my mom asked me, she was worried. She was like, well, what do we do? And I was like, well, you don't live in the basement. It's just your basement. That's pretty much where you store things. Your main floor is fine. Um, and so for me, I'm not worried about that. They're also older. Um, and we know that cancer is a, a long-term um, disease. And they're also not smokers. So I was suggested, well, maybe you can work on the ventilation in the basement a little bit. And we can measure again. But in general, I personally wasn't worried about that. Now, if that 10 picocuries had been in the main floor, we would have had a different conversation. If that 10 picocuries was in a house with smokers or young children, that also would have probably been a different conversation. So it really honestly depends on your situation, what that kind of number you're looking for would be. I, I think the other thing that would be useful to discuss is whether you should mitigate to zero. So it's impossible, but, but I think that, you know, whenever we're trying to get rid of some contaminant or something that is, we, we recognize as harmful to our environment, it's really easy to say, well, I don't want any of it. Why would I even want a little bit? Um, and it's not that you want a little bit. It's just if you're looking at the cost benefit, there's not really a benefit to mitigating as low as possible. What do we say to the people who live in the upstate, particularly in Oconee County, who are concerned that the higher radon levels are due to the Duke Energy plant? The uranium that's used in fuel is purified before it's made into the fuel pellet. And so all of the decay products, which would include the radon, are removed from the uranium. And then the uranium has the isotopes that we use have really long half-lives, which mean that it takes billion years, billions of years, millions of years for it to decay. And so the production of radon from the fuel that's being used in the nuclear reactors at Oconee, we don't have those levels of radon that are even being produced. Lindsay, jump in here and tell us about your research, so what it is you're working on and um, why it's important. So I really love studying minerals and I like looking at them as puzzles and figuring out where contaminants or other atoms, atoms from the outside would go if they were to be incorporated into the mineral. And so that can be for the purpose of radioactive waste disposal, nuclear waste disposal, or it could be for the purpose of designing a new battery. 
So, or it could be to understand where elements are in natural materials. Uh, so that that's like one big passion of mine. I also enjoy looking at how contaminants can be trapped on the mineral surface because of the structure of the surface and because of what elements are at the surface and how they might share electrons. So I kind of think of it as like how their arms might come up and grab something, a contaminant from a water system or a a soil system and pull it to the surface and keep it fixed on that surface. Uh, I also like looking at like, that's a really small view, right? So this is a subatomic view. I'm looking at electrons. I also like to take a huge step back and look at the whole system. And so we're getting into a lot of life cycle assessment, which is looking at the material flow um, from the cradle. So from the start of a process or product to the grave. So the end of life of that process or product. And so we're looking right now at um, modeling the United States nuclear fuel cycle uh, in a more robust manner to be able to start asking questions like, is it beneficial to decommission this facility now versus letting it run for longer? Or how does how does a, the nuclear fuel cycle compare to wind energy or natural gas? On the side, I'm also always interested in how people learn. And so, and, and I like playing games and I like thinking of games. And so I do a little bit of research in game-based learning. And so how we use and how we can design science and engineering games or STEM games to help people learn. And in particular, what we found is that STEM games really help students who might think differently. Uh, Nicole, tell me about what you're working on. Uh, My research is related to radiation protection, as you might have guessed. Uh, and also radioecology. So I'm interested in how different radionuclides move through the environment and then potentially what effects radionuclides might have in the environment. Uh, I also am interested in what's called dosimetry. We mentioned energy deposition earlier. And so I do some work looking at how radionuclides deposit their energy, what the dose associated with that is. Um, and then potentially working with epidemiologists to develop a like dose response, what that means. Um, and so the probably one of the interesting, uh, more, more interesting projects I'm working on currently is looking at uh, doses to the radium dial painters, uh, a group of women in the 1920s who ingested radium um, when painting watch dials. And so that's been a super interesting project. Um, I'm also interested in like, the social sciences, humanities aspect of our field. And I, I teach a course called Nuclear Culture, where we explore how radiation is represented in the media. And we kind of talk about what that means. Um, and we try to tie that to ethics like environmental justice and transparency um, to make sure that our students are well, well-rounded. You know, radiation, uh, it's both scary for people and it also is incredibly useful to us in so many ways. Comment on that a little bit. That's a great point. And it's, there might be another example that escapes me, but radiation can cause and cure cancer, right? And so that's such an interesting, like two sides of a coin, right? So it's something that uh, deserves healthy respect. Yeah, I always like to think about it too, 
from that perspective of a continuum. So there's, it's not a yes or a no. People always ask me, people, my family (laughs) always ask me, so you must be a hugely in support of nuclear reactors. You, you must think that we should have a million nuclear reactors everywhere or, you know, people always kind of drive you to say a simple answer, a yes or a no. And it's just not simple. There's just more to the picture. And so it is really important to take a step back every once in a while and look at that whole picture. Nicole and Lindsay, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for joining me on Earthly today. Thank you so much. Our pleasure. Thank you. For our listeners, we're going to have additional resources on the Earthly website. It'll include links to bios about Nicole and Lindsay. It's also going to include links to DHEX testing protocols and some mitigation protocols and the map that relates to this podcast. Is a production of Clemson University and can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Listeners can find archived episodes of Earthly, transcripts, and learn more about our guests by visiting Clemson.edu/slash Earthly.